Hi, I'm Robin. And I'm Jacob. And welcome to a new episode of Fly on the Wall. Robin and I had such a great conversation with our guest this week, Sarah Sendak. That's right. Sarah Sendak is the former director of public affairs at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency, CISA, and the former White House director of rapid response under the Bush administration. Sarah has held various communications positions in both federal and state levels. Currently, she is a Spring 2021 Fellow at GU Politics. And with that, let's jump into the interview. Well, hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us on Fly on the Wall. Uh, We are excited to talk to you. Uh, I'll let Robin kick it off. Yeah. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us. So our first question is, what first sparked your interest in politics and how does that play into your current work? Um, I think my first interest in politics, I would probably have to say, is maybe a kid at my family's dinner table. Um, Both my parents are lawyers, and uh, I am a middle child with four brothers. So as you can imagine, dinner time was quite a lively discussion. And and my family loves to debate. They love to debate any issue and just take both sides. and so I've learned that from a young age to kind of learn both sides of an argument and, and learn how to defend yourself, um, even if it's just something as mundane as what my curfew is. Uh, but I, I think I've taken that into everything I've enjoyed. And and it's become something for me where it's really fun to go into politics and do communications and kind of have this back and forth with reporters and, and defend different positions. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's. That that itself has helped me grow. I've been fascinated by politics, fascinated by government. Um, it's what I really leaned into when I was in college um, towards that political science major, and I think just naturally found a path out here to Washington D.C. Interesting stuff. Uh, so, do you have any like specific favorite memories from your career? Um, favorite memories of my career. I mean. I've had a lot of them, but I'd have to say just working at the White House itself is is such a fantastic um, experience and something that you I will never uh, I, I can't, you can't top working at the White House. I mean, just every day stepping in there and just knowing that you're working for the President of the United States, serving your country is such an awe-inspiring feeling. Um, maybe fun story, favorite memory there. I was very young when I got my this job at the White House that I had always dreamed of having, so very nervous. And um, naturally, some of my friends like to uh, play jokes on me while I was there. And uh, a few of them actually worked at the White House, but they would like to call my desk phone and pretend to be big name members of the White House that were calling to grill me on different questions. Um, it was just a common thing they would do. Or if I was on press duty rotation, they'd call me at night and say it was the Washington Post calling with breaking news and they needed me to answer right away. Uh, Maybe not the most professional games they played. Anyway, one day I was sitting at my desk uh, working on some edits for a fact sheet and I get a call and they announced themselves as being an operator on Air Force One. And I, um, so I'm like, okay, Air Force One is calling me, of course, yeah. Uh, call the 24-year-old. And they said, it's Air Force One and we have Carl Rove on the line for you. And so I'm immediately like, ha ha, hilarious guys, you got me. <laughs> um, the Air Force officer stopped and he's like, I'm sorry, uh, do I have Sarah Sendek on the line? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, 
So can I patch you through to Carl Rove? At which point I realized that Carl Rove was actually calling me from Air Force One and that was not a joke. So quickly had to compose myself and deal with that. But probably one of the most fun memories I've had in politics and a little embarrassing. I love that story. That's that is so hilarious. Uh, so our next question is following up on your experience at the White House. What is the biggest difference between communications on the campaign trail and communications for the president? Um, so I think if you if you put it in the context of communications on the campaign and communications in the federal government, they're they're different in the sense that when you're communicating on behalf of the federal government, you have to remember that you know, what you're saying carries the weight of the federal government. There's a lot of public policy behind it and and saying the wrong thing might change national security implications on occasion. Um, campaigns are really fun because it's a lot of kind of uh, bomb throwing. You get to be a little more out there, um, try to light a spark. I, I think that that becomes difficult now in, in what I'm discussing in my classes in, the t- in times of disinformation, you know, what kind of responsibility do campaigns have to only sharing the facts? But um, campaigns are a lot of, you know, rough and tumble, really get into it kind of communications. And in the federal government, you really have to follow a lot more of a process. You have to be a little more cautious and thoughtful about the things you're saying and understand that, you know, you are not just representing a candidate, you are representing the entire country, you're representing the American people. Um, that said, it's a huge honor, it's a huge responsibility, and um, I, I've enjoyed every minute of it and, and working you know, day-to-day. CISA, in particular, where I just worked, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, is actually a, is the newest agency in the federal government. Um, so the way we operated was a little different than kind of some of the older agencies and departments that have been around longer, um, we tried to, you know, some, a lot of these older departments and agencies, they become very bureaucratic and very formalized in the way they uh, communicate with the press and the way they communicate with the public. But what was really fun about CISA was we're this new cybersecurity agency and we operated a, a lot more like a startup in the sense where we were always trying uh, new and different things to get our message out, you know, really being out there and, and answering every reporter question and, and taking the belief that uh, over communication is better than just the regular no comment uh, that a lot of agencies and departments might feel more apt to direct to. And, and we got a really good response to it. And I, I really do hope that that, that continues and, and kind of changes the way that government is communicating with the American people, you know, trying out different mediums, whether it's, you know, using social media, um, in-person events, but but just really stressing this, you know, communications is key. And what we need to do is share and not not undershare. People need to hear from their government. And that's, that's what we owe them as, as public servants. Of course. Thank you. Uh, and we'll circle back to CISA in a minute. Uh, but first time, Still curious about some of your work on the Hill. Uh, so, you were under President Bush and President Trump uh, in in different administrations, and I'm sure they ran the White House very differently. Uh, how did your experiences under each president differ, uh, and just what was what was your your interpretation of their leadership styles? Yeah, I think first I'll start with uh, President Bush. It was obviously I, I've said this a million times, but my greatest honor to serve 
under President Bush and serve in the White House. I think um, one of the things that was really great about him is that he he just bred this natural loyalty. You wanted to serve, you know, he, he made everybody that worked for him very proud to be there and very um, honored to serve and wanting to carry out his agenda and, and just do whatever they could because President Bush himself never took advantage or, or never, never took it for advantage what an honor it is to be able to be in that position and serve your country and what a huge responsibility it is. And so we always really wanted to live up to that. Um, there was very much a sense of community across the Bush administration. We're still, I think the, the Bush administration is still close in terms of alumni to this day. Um, Pre-COVID, we just had a big alumni event in DC. I think it was last year, but you know, I, I know that everyone's still very connected and that's because of the, the community that the president fostered. Um, he was very good to his staff. One of the really cool things that he did as president was um, everyone who worked for him got an exit interview per se, where you got to bring your family into the Oval Office and have about 10 minutes alone with the president and your family. Um, he made sure to personally learn your name, talk to you and say thank you to every single person there. Um, just unbelievable. You know, the Trump administration, it's it's been a different experience, first and foremost, because I was not in the White House. I was in an agency, which itself is a different um, is a different kind of job. You know, we the White House, I was looking at all issues in, in a very centralized position at an agency. I'm very focused on the only issues, which are uh, cybersecurity and infrastructure security um, and, and everything that falls under that. But, you know, I will say working at CISA, we had an equally great community and and everybody there I'm still so close with. And and I wish I could still be working at CISA to this day because it's such a great, such a great place. And, and we had the same kind of leadership that really fostered that sense of community. And so um, both administrations, well, a very different sense of leadership and style at the, from the presidential level. I mean, both of them, I never failed to realize what a great honor it is to serve your country. Um, Cause at the end of the day, that that's what serving the federal government is, is, is being there to serve your country, regardless of who's in charge. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that insight with us. So during the Trump presidency, what major challenges do you think COVID posed to the communications field and what COVID era changes do you, you predict will stick around in the field? Um, yeah, I think COVID it changed what it would, I would say it changed for most professions and most people's jobs um, the same way that we're talking over Zoom right now, you know, that's changed for everyone. Um, the difficult part in, in communications and press is a lot of our work depends on, you know, having relationships and contacts with members of the media and reporters. Um, that used to be in the form of just meeting them at different events at press conferences or or over coffee or drinks and just kind of building that relationship and establishing that trust. Um, I think reporters will say that that the virtual environment probably hurt them more because this is also how they build their sources and, and build their understanding of, of everything they cover. Um, so, so that certainly changed in the way that we we work together, um, I do hope that comes back. I, I think, I mean, 
in all elements of networking that that face-to-face contact is is such a great thing and so important so I really hope that comes back after COVID some things that um I hope that will continue was this uh this COVID environment forced us to do you know a lot of press conferences a lot of availabilities a lot of communication over Zoom which actually opens who we're able to talk to um from the media perspective that means that we could reach out to more, you know, local reporters or reporters on the West Coast, um, not necessarily the same group that's only in here in D.C., but just a, a, a larger um, audience, which is always important, um, especially in, in this age of disinformation and misinformation, when things aren't being communicated as clearly, you know, the, the more people you can reach directly, the more people you can speak to is is so important. And, and if continuing to do events over Zoom or, or any of these virtual events helps reach a larger audience. I think that's a great thing and we should continue to do it. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, so going back to your time at CISA a little bit, which stands for Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, right? Yeah, it's really easy to say. CISA <laughs> <laughs> is definitely a little, a little easier to get A past. little easier. <laughs> Um, so going back to your time at CISA, how would you describe your work in the agency just on a day-to-day basis? Sure. You know, funny enough with the, uh, CISA name, I've been, I've gone back and forth with reporters for a lot since CISA came into existence, which is in 2018, in November of 2018. But as you said, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is a mouthful. It's hard to say. It's, uh, not a lot of people have heard of it. And so reporters often shorthand it in their articles and they call it DHS's cyber arm because we're we're part of the Department of Homeland Security. So they'll call it DHS's cyber arm, DHS's cyber wing. And my thing is every time I saw it in an article, I'd call them and I said, that's not our name. Our name is CISA or Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And we'd go in a back and forth about word count and nobody knew what it meant and why would they call it and I said no one's going to know what it means until you keep writing it in your article um anyway after after my boss Chris Krebs got uh fired by Donald Trump in a tweet which uh really raises the profile of people it turns out um you know we got a lot more name recognition for our agency people that never heard of our agency before all of a sudden we're familiar with CISA um and I've noticed that the reporters have started using our name more in their articles, too. Um, I always told them my legacy would be that they'd write CISA in their articles instead of DHS. And and I think we're almost getting there. Um, anyway, sorry, that was a tangent. But uh, day-to-day CISA is, uh, you know, it, it, like I said, it's a startup. It's dependent on what kind of cyber activity, what kind of election activity is going on each day. And probably no day is anything like you expect it. You know, I would wake up and and start the day by reading up my news clips, um, figuring out what news I needed to address. And then we probably had the same 9.15 meeting every morning. That was probably the extent of the consistency. There's always something that comes up. There's snap meetings. You're, you know, you think you're going to be doing something one day, and that completely changes in in the the blink of an eye. Um, but that's because we're we're a small team, and we are out there and engaged in everything going on. And 
like I said, we're very big on over communication. So if we see something in the news, we want to be the first ones out there, you know, telling the American people what we see, what we know and what we understand. Um, and, and it's, it's a blast. It's a great time working there, but uh, it's certainly not a very regimented schedule and it would often go late into the night. So not a lot of sleep either. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. So as you mentioned, CISA is still a fairly new institution. So how did its purpose evolve during your time there and over the course of election cycles? Um, yeah, you know, one of the interesting things about CISA's role in elections is that the federal government, I don't want to say had no role in elections, but wasn't really involved in elections until 2017. Um, elections uh, are actually run at the state and local level as as designed under the constitution the federal government does not run elections which i don't know that everyone always pays attention to but um come 2016 elections actually became a major target for the russians who attempted to interfere in our election process um and it made clear that the federal government needed to step up into a larger role uh again when I say the federal government did have some role in terms of intelligence and law enforcement and protecting election systems, but we don't own those systems. We can't actually go in there and just say, you know, we're going to do, we're going to scan your election systems. We're going to do certain things. We have to instead support state and local election officials and help them understand how best to protect their systems. Um, so that was the role CISA was charged with at that point after we saw what happened in 2016 and 2017, DHS declared election infrastructure, critical infrastructure. And CISA took the lead role in working with uh, state and local election officials, working with social media companies, working with anyone that had any sort of role in elections to understand where the vulnerabilities were. Um, help provide the resources they needed to, you know, shore up their vulnerabilities, especially in cybersecurity. Um, what, you know, did they need multi-factor authentication? We helped them with phishing scans, scanning their systems to make sure there were no cyber intrusions and, and, and really build up those defenses there. Um, it, it became really a whole of nation effort to secure our election systems and despite all the claims that have come out this past year, disappointingly, um, we at CISA are very confident that that every vote that was cast was counted correctly. This was, in fact, the most secure election. Um, so it's been a remarkable change of progress over the past three years, the way that CISA kind of tackled this, um, and state and local election officials, obviously, too, because they have you know, not always the best resources, but we're able to really ramp up the defenses of their uh, their systems. Um, and since this is charged with uh, protecting all the critical infrastructure systems that are mostly private owned, uh, what we did with elections is going to be a really good model moving forward as to how we help protect other critical infrastructure sectors. Um, so I think you'll kind of see that continue to grow for CISA now. Um, one of the big things they've been working on since COVID is helping protect the COVID vaccine response. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of those working on the COVID response have been targets from foreign nation states uh, for for spying and other malicious activity. And again, these are private sector partners that have not necessarily uh, in the past seen themselves as targets of Russian or Chinese espionage. 
And that's where the federal government has to kind of come in and help them uh, understand what these threats are, shore up their defenses, and provide any support necessary because obviously the the COVID response efforts affect all of us as a country. So, so you spoke a little about lessons uh, learned from 2016's election security issues mm-hmm. and how that helped the federal government plan better for 2020 uh, with its new involvement in the process. Uh, what challenges, maybe COVID-related, maybe not, do you think surprised the federal government or do you think they had a pretty good handle on it going in? I think the the challenge that we were looking at once COVID started, which was what in March of 2020, was, you know, we had been practicing for two years and preparing for this election, uh, understanding where the vulnerabilities were in election systems that could be, you know, uh, prone to cyber attacks. Was it ransomware? Ransomware has been a big issue that we've been looking at. Um, not that we are, believe a cyber criminal or a nation state can get into an election machine and change a vote, but can they affect other parts of the system? Like, can they affect the voter registration database? Can they shut down a, a state election official's office, uh, making it harder to run election day operations? Um, those are the kind of things that really had an opportunity to disrupt our elections and still do. And that's still a major focus of, of what the, the federal government, the state and local election officials are looking at um, and working to protect against for all future elections. But then um, we saw in March as COVID hit and everybody went in lockdown orders, uh, states still had their primary elections going on. Uh, the Democratic primary was still going on. People still needed to go out and vote for their candidate for the uh, uh, for the Democratic primary. And how were they going to do that in the face of a pandemic? And election officials who are prepared for everything and they have done an incredible job adapting all of their voting methods under COVID, they quickly changed over and looked at vote by mail as an option to safely vote in these primaries. Um, now, what what happened with that was it it kind of changed the attack surface that we were looking at protecting and and um, it became more about how do we secure vote by mail? Are there, you know, how are we working with the post office? So CISA started convening these calls with election officials. Um, we had secretaries of state that had already been running statewide vote by mail operations. Um, and they spoke to other secretaries of state and kind of gave best tips as to how you switch over in a very condensed time frame, which is, is a lot more difficult than it sounds. You know, we had a uh, the CDC come in and talk about COVID protocols for voting, what they recommend. We had the post office come in and talk about how they could help deliver the mail. Um, so that that was kind of the first challenge we had in facing election security. But the second one that I don't I don't know that we were necessarily expecting was how hard the president uh, started coming out against vote by mail, um, which put us in a difficult position. You know, the more the more claims inaccurate claims he made about election security, the more he called into doubt the process, uh, is something that we really expected from nation state actors. But when it became our own politicians and domestic actors, it really put us in a tough position as to what we do. You know, we know that these are secure elections, but, uh, and we knew that there were always going to be disinformation actors coming from uh, nation states, but but I'm not, I'm not sure that there is a really good plan in place as to how to answer that when it's coming from our own elected officials. 
especially when they are your bosses. So that was certainly a struggle um, and, and something I would say not entirely expected. Yeah, thank you for sharing those thoughts with us. So with all the complex issues you outlined, what do you think the future holds for cybersecurity and the public sector? Um, I think this goes back to what I was saying earlier. You know, cybersecurity is actually a larger issue for the private sector, um, but but the federal government has a certain responsibility to help these private sector partners um, to to build up their defenses. Uh, cybersecurity it affects everybody on every step of life. I think we've seen that happen, you know, grow, especially during these times of COVID, but it's everything from elementary schools that are being hit with ransomware to just everyone in their day-to-day lives and what kind of uh, vulnerabilities our devices have. And, and, and we're seeing an increasing amount of, you know, nation state actors taking aims at hospitals or anything like that, or ransomware has become a business. And, and what role does the federal government have in, in helping um, protect against these things and not making cybersecurity, cyber attacks a, a normal in our country and making it more difficult? And that's going to largely depend on partnerships. It's going to depend on information sharing between corporations and private sector partners and, and the government. You know, the government shares what intelligence they have. We share resources. But it's not just a government issue. It's a whole of nation issue. Um, and I think we'll see that grow over the next couple of years. Thank you very much. So we've talked about the past, talked about the present, talked about the future. I think that means we're all clear to move into our lightning round. We'll ask three pretty quick, pretty simple questions uh, and hopefully get three, three shorter answers. Okay. Uh, so first, what is your favorite app on your phone? Um, the New York Times. No, I'm just kidding. It's social media, Twitter, Instagram. <laughs> I am in the same boat. So I want I wanted to sound smarter. <laughs> next question. What is your comfort food? Comfort food. Mm, I like pasta. <laughs> yes, I'm a big pasta guy. <laughs> <laughs> Any kind. Uh, so then finally, if you could give one piece of advice to all of our Hoyas listening, what would it be? Um Right. Thank you letters. I think we're in a digital age and um, it's really easy to write emails, but, uh, I, you know, a handwritten thank you letter goes a long way and someone might re- remember you. That is so thoughtful. <laughs> All right. I will definitely take that advice into um, my interactions with people in the future, but thank you so <laughs> much, Sarah, for joining us um, at Fly in the Wall today and taking um, just a bit of your day to speak with us. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. This was great. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. We hope you tune in again next time. Before you go, make sure you follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And as always, you can email us at Fly on the Wall Podcast at gmail.com. See you next week.